0: This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God? Come what me. That the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is.
1: And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome and thank you so much for joining us again. USA Today recently reported on the latest results of an international exam given to teenagers, which ranked the USA ninth in reading and 31st in math literacy out of 79 countries and economies. And the newspaper concluded that the best way for American schools to improve math education is to teach it differently and more creatively. But there are, of course, many more problems with America's public schools than just test scores. Whatever happened, for instance, to teaching students to respect our nation's history or to possess good moral character. Well, these are just some of the important ingredients for creating a good American education. And we're gonna talk about it more now with education expert, Michael Petrilli, who is president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and co-editor of the book we'll be discussing. It's called How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. And it's great to have you with us, Michael. How are you? I'm well. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Janet. Well, thank you for being here. We do hear a lot, don't we, about test scores and performance. We don't hear so much, I would say in the media at least, about what makes for a good American education. How would you respond to that overall view of what it really takes to educate an American?
2: No, I, I think that's right, Janet. You know, the, the really the driver for this book was the sense that education reform, which many of us have been working on for, for decades now, feels duck and unfortunately uh, we see that the test scores that you reference are are not moving in the direction we'd like them to be moving in and a lot of the bipartisan efforts that have happened uh, over the years have been breaking down that's some bad news now we doubt though this does provide an opportunity to step back and ask some super smart people in this case we asked about 20 leading conservative writers and intellectuals policymakers to give us their thoughts on where should education reform go next. And what was interesting was that uh, almost all of them agreed that we had been ignoring some things uh, in this education reform movement that matter a lot, like teaching American history and doing that the right way, like teaching character, like sending the message to kids that uh, there are strong ways to enter the middle class that do not involve going to a four-year college. Lots of other ideas in this book, and it's time for us as conservatives to re-engage with these ideas.
0: Oh, I agree completely. I'm wondering how you would characterize the guiding philosophy, as it were, of American education right now, if there actually is one, and and maybe also discuss a little bit about how that has veered off course from what has been the conservative vision for the schools.
2: Yeah, you know, I would say that the big focus for the last decade or two has been on this notion of, of readiness for college and career and I think we'd all agree that those things are important. Uh, we know that most young people today are going to need some kind of post-secondary education in order to get a decent paying job. doesn't have to be four-year college, uh, but, you know, people do get paid better if they've got those credentials. Uh, and of course, that we want to make sure that our uh, education system is producing students who can go out and get a job and pay their bills and support a family. Uh, but uh, what that leaves out is the focus on citizenship. And it's that focus on citizenship that really was the driver from the very beginning for having a system of schools in America. Uh, I think all of us would agree it's hugely important. When when we look at what's happening in our country today with, with all of the polarization and just the inability for us to even talk to each other and work together, uh, I think there's a sense that there's a breakdown. And when you dig into how uh, we are teaching young people today about civics or about history, it's very disturbing. You know, you you either look at elementary schools where outside of, uh, you know, say, core knowledge schools, you see very little teaching of history going on. Whereas the kids get older, if it is being taught in many places, it's being taught very much from a a left-wing perspective, very anti-American. You know, instead of awards and all approach, it's only the warts. Uh, and, and teaching kids, uh, you know, America, rather than being this, this country with these amazing ideals that we have sometimes struggled to live up to, it's, it's the message is that America is nothing but a racist, imperialist, oppressive country, right. a very cynical view about our history, and, and that may explain some of what's going on these days.
0: Well, I agree completely with you. And do you think that in and of itself is reflective of the failure in many regards of the American public schools? Because those people who are putting that out there now to the new generation of students themselves were educated in that way. I would say many of them, at least with that leftist viewpoint that says America is terrible and America needs to be worked and reworked and has to be different than it's been in the past. I mean, it kind of trickles down, doesn't it? From generation to generation, if that's what you're hearing, school.
2: Well, right. And it's certainly probably what many of our teachers heard when they went to colleges and universities. I think there's a lesson for us uh, as conservatives. You know, I think you could certainly argue that over the last uh, generation, we on the right have basically ceded the universities to the left. Yes. You know, to make sure that those universities uh, continue to uphold the principles of this country. Well, now we're doing the same thing when it comes to the public schools in too many cases, you know, not engaging on these big debates about how history is taught. Now, the good news is that these decisions in our system are still made locally. Uh, and so concerned citizens can show up at school board meetings, even run for the school board, ask questions. How are we teaching history here in our community? Are we doing it in a way uh, that hears perspectives from all sides that looks at the, the positives and the negatives? Or is it all negative? And uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic that if conservatives step up and and let their voices be heard. Uh, we won't have the same situation that we have today, where again some some of this uh, nonsense is happening in our own backyard.
0: Well, you're right. I think that the involvement of the local parents is very, very critical to making sure that the schools are doing their job. One of the things I want to ask you, though, when we're talking about the need for students to understand American history and to understand citizenship and civics, what all do you believe that ought to entail in the curricula? For example, when you're talking about elementary, it's going to be different than maybe in middle school or high school. But what sorts of things ought to be taught in the classroom K through 12? Yeah.
2: So first of all, we have got to get back to the point where our elementary schools really are teaching history and science and geography. And boy, if if you're saying, well, what what are they teaching? Instead, in in a lot of places, we spend a huge amount of time in elementary school teaching, quote, English language arts. Uh, And when you dig in, what that looks like is kids doing these endless drills around reading comprehension, you know, which is reading a passage and trying to find the main idea and you know, it's as boring and ineffective as it sounds. <laughs> you know, the way that we actually are going to both teach kids how to read and teach them all this other important material is to teach stuff, is to teach history and science and geography so that when they get to a passage and they read something about, you know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, they know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. They, not just that they can sound out his name, uh, but that they actually have been taught about what he did in his uh, in his career and what he stood for and how he saved the, the the nation, and on and on and on. So that's the first place it starts is to bring back history into our elementary schools, where a lot of place times it's been pushed out. And then as kids get older, I think it is appropriate to present different perspectives. You know, it, if uh, if schools want to use some of the more controversial materials where they are presenting, you know, a real sort of downside of American history, they sure as heck better not do that alone. They need to make sure that there's another side presented as well, that the more patriotic, positive vision as well, and then let kids wrestle uh, with the different interpretations. Right now, though, what we see in a lot of schools is awfully close to indoctrination instead
0: Michael, what would you say is the current state in the public schools of actually having kids read some of the most important founding documents? I'm thinking about the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, maybe the Federalist Papers, some of these very, very vital documents that have told the story of the history and the republic that we live in today. What is the status that you know of regarding how much students are getting as far as knowledge and direct knowledge of these documents? Documents by reading them in school?
2: Yeah, it's, good. it's a good question. It's hard to know for sure. The good news is these are included in many state standards, the expectation that students will read these documents. And when you look at classes like the Advanced Placement History classes, you see a lot of use of these kinds of primary documents there as well. Now, the question is, though, what kind of interpretation are the educators using when they're presenting them to students? I'm sure we could do better
0: on that. Well, Well, I'm sure. Hang on just one moment. We're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Michael Petrilli, his book, How to Educate an American. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with healthcare for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year, pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT.
2: I was afraid, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion.
0: The battle for life has heated up in our country, and standing for life is more difficult than ever. The Ministry of Preborn empowers young women in crisis to choose life. By letting an expectant mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see him on an ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear a heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today and help women with crisis pregnancies choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. We really need your help during these summer months when donations tend to slow down. Please help right now if you can. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at Janet Meffer. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to be talking with education expert Michael Petrelli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is co-editor of the new book, How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. And Michael, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the standards that do require kids to read things like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and so forth. But is that making a difference when you're talking about a conservative vision for education Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much indoctrination from the left on America's failures and the Howard Zinn view of history that's inculcated in so many kids' brains. How how do you see that balance of even if you require them to read it, if you have a teacher who may be undermining it in the classroom, what do we do about that?
2: Right. No, that that is a huge challenge. And it's hard to know for sure how these things are being presented in America's schools, though you certainly now hear from college professors, uh, you know, including, say, Robbie George, who is in us esteemed professor at Princeton who wrote a chapter for our book, A Rare Conservative on a College Campus. Now, you know, Princeton is by no means representative, but he will say that when, when he teaches freshman students there, they have already been indoctrinated. They, yeah. they understand, you know, what they're supposed to say, and they're supposed to take the leftward view. So, you know, we have this idea that there's indoctrination going on on campuses, but it is happening before they even get there. And I think that's something that we really do need to, to be concerned about.
0: Absolutely. Now, something else that you had mentioned, and your writers, uh, such good essays in this book on the conservative vision for tomorrow's schools. But Pete Wainer, for example, looks at the issue of the decline of character education. And I'm wondering what you think would be some ways to address that important issue in a better way in the schools today. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, he, he wrote a great essay on that. And look, you know, many of us on the right have said that one of the best ways we can address that is by having school choice. You know, yes. by allowing parents to choose schools that meet uh, that fit with their own values, including religious schools. And uh, you know, it's it's hard to teach the character piece without uh, paying attention to religion. So that's certainly important. But we don't want to give up on the traditional public schools. At the same time, they have they certainly have most of the kids. Uh, And there is a lot that they can do, and it, it comes to the old adage about how young kids, they are watching not what we say, but what we do. You know, we need to practice what we preach. We need to, instead of just teaching them about character, we need to show them good character. That, of course, means that the adults in the school, the teachers and administrators themselves showing good character. It also means how do the adults in the school respond when kids invariably misbehave? There's this crazy notion going around the schools today. Uh, that somehow discipline, uh, we we shouldn't discipline kids, Uh, we shouldn't suspend them, Uh, you know, to do so is is racist, Uh, it's unfair, especially for kids that are coming from the challenges of poverty, that, uh, you know, that they sort of, almost to say that they can't help it, it's this this soft bigotry of low expectations when it comes to student behavior, Instead, what they need to see is that the adults in the school are serious about learning. They're going to make sure that the environment is safe and, and orderly uh, and that kids that, that break the rules and that are not able to behave, that there are consequences. And then that those students are helped to learn how to behave better because in the real world, there are going to be serious consequences uh, if, if you can't do so. So those are some of the things that we that we need to do. You know, there are other ways to make sure kids are reading great Books of of literature going back to the ancients and, and the Western canon, being able to you know talk about the the virtues and, and character traits that we can learn from uh, you know different characters in history or in literature, and that's all important. But I, I really think it's a lot about the climate and the culture of the schools, what happens day to day. And do the schools live up to the, uh, the values that they espouse?
0: Well, that's right. It, it, when you were saying that, it was reminding me of a friend who I have who has been a teacher for many, many years and finally threw in the towel and took a different job in the school district. And the reason that she did that is she said, I couldn't discipline the kids. I wasn't allowed mm-hmm. to by the administration. You know, things that we all would have been sent to the principal for when we were kids in a heartbeat and so we didn't dare do it. Nowadays, kids get away with everything. And she said it was yep. so frustrating because my principal would not back me up. I, I I would have some kid who was out of control, and the principal would say, just deal with it, and then the parent would come in and yell at me because I was being unfair mm-hmm. to her kid. You know, th- This is a big yeah. frustration, I think, for a lot of teachers who say, I would do that, Michael, if I could, but they're not letting me do mm-hmm. that in this school. What do we do about that problem?
2: No, it's a huge frustration. We, we did a survey a year ago at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute uh, of Teachers asking them about these issues, and, and they are just you know they're scared. they a lot of them, and especially in, in tough schools, feel like they are at risk of being hurt themselves. Right. Uh, and it just kills them that their classrooms are out of order and they are not getting support from administrators when they try to do something about it. Uh, you know, so what do we do? Look, we got to get back to some common sense. Uh, you know, we've got to back up teachers. We've got to hold kids accountable for good behavior. You know, look, people are saying, "Well, we don't want to." kick kids out of school when they need to be in school learning. So, uh, and you know, if you're poor and you're uh, suspended and you've got no safe place to be, you know, that that's a, a legitimate concern. So then you go to some kind of in-school suspension. You go to some kind of special schools for kids that have behavioral problems. You know, you you tackle the problem head on, but you don't say, well, we're just going to have to accept that our classrooms are going to be disorderly and that kids and teachers are going to feel unsafe. You know, that is not OK.
0: Yeah. And, and another issue that comes up in your book is the importance of giving students a focus on their purpose. And I think that's really important to give a kid a long term view of life. Like you're not just stuck here today being bored by what the teacher is talking about in front of your class. You're going somewhere if you will invest in your own education that will better your life over the long haul. How do you do that in the classroom in an effective way, would you say?
2: Yeah, no, it's so important. Uh, you know, one one thing is to acknowledge that uh, where our schools do this well, it's often after school. It's after uh, outside the classroom. It's in athletics. You know, it's in the music programs and the extra other extracurriculars uh, where the American education system is probably at its, at its strongest. Because, again, we in, in those places, we are all about excellence. We are about real teamwork. Uh, We're about, you know, kids uh, feeling a sense of pride in what they accomplish. And and that's a great way for young people to start to develop those kinds of skills and to start getting to understand their own strengths and weaknesses and and where they want to go with their lives. Another thing is to make sure that when we are, especially in high school, preparing students for what comes next, we are not so narrowly focused just on college, especially four-year colleges. You know, but that we send the message to young people that it is certainly okay, even great, if they want to go into a trade, if they want to learn a technical skill, and make those pathways open to them starting in high school, that they can find great purpose by having pride in their work in those skills. It doesn't have to be just uh, everything about going to take uh, you know four more years of courses. Uh, in a in a college campus.
0: Yes. Now, here's a question. When you mentioned the problems in the colleges and universities as far as leftist indoctrination, and then those are feeder schools into our public schools with teachers, administrators, et cetera, mm-hmm. is there an effective way that that can be addressed? I mean, when you're talking to these bright minds that you've included mm-hmm. in your book, certainly some of the best out there. I mean, certainly, that's on everybody's mind. How, how do we stop the flow of leftist indoctrination into the public schools without addressing the problem of higher education and the leftist yeah. thought that goes on there?
2: Now, look, I look. I don't know how to fix the higher ed piece, but I, I will say that there are some tools that we have in K through 12 to make sure that kids are learning uh, something that pre- presents all sides. You know that we've we've got standards uh, which spell out what kids are supposed to know and be able to do. We've got textbook selection. Uh, committees at the state and local levels that can help. You know, and when conservatives let their voices be heard, they can have an impact. Yes. You know, a couple of years ago, the, the folks that run the advanced placement program came out with a, a new history course. And a lot of conservatives were worried that it would lean way too far to the left. Uh, it got into some of that indoctrination. They made a fuss about it. And lo and behold, the, the folks in charge changed it. Uh, and now it's much more balanced than it used to be. Uh, we need to engage in those same debates at the local level as well.
0: Well, that's important, and that touches on something that's so vital, and that is parental involvement. I I don't think we can overstate that, really, because theoretically, isn't it the case that public schools are supposed to be locally focused? And and way back when, the federal government was not nearly as involved in everything as it is today. How Mm -hmm. can you encourage parents to to really be about the business of staying on top of what's going on in the public schools and being willing to run for the school board or to be involved in a textbook committee?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I think the first step is just to to kind of pay attention, to ask questions, to uh you know, and if something looks wrong to you, if if something you, know, you get that feeling in your gut that that's something that something doesn't seem right, you know, follow that voice, find out more, you know, dig in. Uh and by the way, it's not just parents. I mean, even people who maybe whose kids are already through the school system, you know, all citizens should be paying attention. To this yes. key question, how, how is history? How's character? How is that being taught? In our schools uh, and and stepping up and asking those questions.
0: Well, that's really smart, right? Because there are retirees who maybe could be involved and have more time than the mom across the street who already has Mm -hmm. lots of things going on. What would you say your vision is, really, Michael, when it comes down to it for a revitalized education agenda that really implements a conservative vision of education?
2: You know, I think we have to make sure that we have a broader vision of what education is about. You know, it's got to go beyond test scores. And as conservatives, it's got to go beyond school choice, you know, and and that means making sure that we are paying attention to how we're preparing young people for citizenship, how we're preparing them to be good people in our society, good character and beyond. And, you know, look, I I think that there can be a lot of agreement with folks on the left over these things, you know, that I I think at the broad level, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all want uh, a strong democracy. We all want, uh, you know, good people and and uh, and folks who can go and get good jobs. But uh, but if we don't speak up, then the way it often comes out is is very slanted. And so this is a time for conservatives to reengage.
0: Well, I agree because there are an awful lot of conservative families who have kids in the public schools, even though they might say, I want school choice. But you're right. I mean, the public schools educate so many millions of kids in this country, and we can't just completely give them over and say, forget it. I'm going to take my kids out. That doesn't do away with the total problem because we're still faced with all the millions of kids who do go through this system. And I think this is really, really good as a vision for tomorrow's schools, a conservative vision. The name of the book is How to Educate an American, co Michael Petrilli who's been joining us and just a delight to have you Michael thank you so much for being with us
2: thank you for having
0: me on thank you God bless you and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. The opening chapter of the Gospel of John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we also know from Psalm 33, 6, that by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The Word is Jesus Christ, and by the Word, the Lord spoke into existence everything that is and upholds it by the Word of his power, as Hebrews 1 tells us. The Word is powerful, and God's words are powerful. But if you were to choose just a few words to sum up god's word what would they be kind of a hard question but my next guest has done just that darren spoo is fast pastor of first baptist church in tulsa oklahoma he's also the author of the book we'll be talking about called the bible in 10 words unlocking the message of scripture and connecting with god darren so nice to have you here how are you
1: Janet, thank you so much for having me on your show. I do appreciate it so much.
0: Oh well, it's my honor to have you here. And I would say explaining the Bible in ten years is a uh, ten words is a really daunting <laughs> task. I don't know how you could reduce it to ten, and I know you can't completely reduce it to ten. But what made you want to try?
1: You know, I, I, it goes back to a serendipitous moment. I I was with some friends, and we were visiting South Africa uh, several years ago. And we were hosted to a night of stargazing, and I'd never seen the Southern Cross. Mm. Uh, Of course, you can't see the Southern Cross from the northern hemisphere where I live in North America. And so seeing that constellation of stars was just really special. At the same time, at the exact same time, I I was on this kick of reading through the first three chapters of Genesis, and I just kept reading it over and over and over. And as I was doing that... um, a constellation of words began to coalesce in a way that I'd never seen before. And these 10 words, I I realized in retrospect, uh, each word is is seen throughout the pages of Scripture. And so I saw these constellation of words and the first three chapters that, like the the Southern Cross, I'd never seen before. And so I just, I explored those 10 words for all that they're worth. And I I realized that those 10 words together and each individually do a really good job of summing up the message of God's love, and the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's interesting when you're just sticking to the first few chapters of Genesis, how in fact just those chapters contain the very words that explain the whole Bible. How do you see that as being a particularly significant point for people that just in those few chapters, you can get the entire gospel and all of the importance uh, and important concepts that we need to know as Christians?
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, it goes back to a problem that I face as a pastor, and I think every pastor and every Bible reader faces this, that, um, that the Bible is just sometimes overwhelming. And I've spent my career uh, as a pastor trying to make the Scripture just, just a bit more accessible. So the Bible has 1,200 chapters, 31,000 verses, three-quarters of a million words. You know, it, part of this, this um, journey of Bible in Ten Words is to say, while, while the Scripture is big— it's also very simple. Anyone can understand the message of God's love for us. And so it's just a way of making the message of Scripture a bit more accessible and and not as overwhelming as it first may may
0: seem. Right, that's very good. So your first word is light, and this goes back, obviously, to when God created the world, the cosmos, let there be light. Why is that word number one? Why start with that word?
1: Yeah, well... You know, I instantly when you see that, and that that moment, that very first moment that God creates, that time is brought into existence, that the physical realities of our universe came into being, that the spiritual realities of our universe came into being, that to me seemed like the perfect place to start, because how does John start his gospel? He talks about the Word of God and Jesus being the light yeah. of of the world. So there's this instant connection. From that first moment of creation to God's highest moment of incarnation, and, and again, each each one of these words is a thread, and there's there's no word like light to make that that quick connection to Jesus, um, mm-hmm. that, that God not only, not only turned on the physical light of the world, but but the spiritual light that's available in Jesus, that's that's a pretty easy connection for most people to make.
0: Right. When you look at some of the subsequent verses on light throughout the course of the Bible, what are some of the highlights? You mentioned John 1, obviously Jesus is the light, but you you think of some of the verses talking about walking in the light and the light, uh, the darkness has not overcome. Some of those verses that reference light, what comes to mind when you're looking at, at how that first uh, line from God, let there be light, is backed up with all of these uh, following references to the light and, and really referencing Jesus.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I see it as um, as the image of the sun and moon. So So Jesus is the light of the world, but then Jesus turned around and said, you are the light of the world as well, yes. um, you know, and, and let your light shine matthew five sixteen let your let your light shine whether you 're a city on a hill or a candle in a house so if there 's anything we have to offer our world from our lives it 's going to be the reflected light of Christ. I have no light of my own to, to offer anything I have comes from him and as a gift, and I'm, and i 'm to reflect that to the world around me and how much do we need that, especially right now in, in dark times?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, another word you highlight is dust from Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed yeah. the man out of the dust of the ground. I mean, this is not something that the pride of man likes to consider, the fact that man was created from dust. But it's yeah. really important for us to remember that. Talk, talk about why that is.
1: You know, for me, the word dust is just a really good reminder that God uses ordinary substances and and I I've, I've often said that as a pastor that God uses ordinary people because that's the only kind of people there are. <laughs> and so God didn't make us out of gold or diamonds or anything. He made us out of dust. And and right there from the very beginning we're reminded that that we are made of ordinary material. And again, God has has melded his divinity into our our makeup of dust, and so we are special not by virtue of our own, but because of who God is in our lives. And you know what? And with it, dust kind of reminds us how frail we are. Right? From right. dust you are to dust you'll return. Yeah. Uh, this is transient, and if we're ever to have a life, it's not going to be of our own making. It's going to be yeah. found in Christ.
0: That's right. I mean, Ecclesiastes three is what you're referencing there, and and it also testifies, as you say in the book, to our creation and bears witness to the curse of sin. And and this is important for us to remember as well. When we we consider that we were formed from dust, man was formed from dust and woman was formed from man, but we will return to dust. I mean, this is a common line that, that is mentioned at funerals, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We understand that we are transient, as you said, and we are mortal and yet we are immortal at the same time. So when you're speaking of dust and the significance of dust, how does that make the gospel sweeter? The fact that even though we are dust, we are important to the Lord
1: yeah well you know if, if you trace the the writings of paul as he talks about adam he said you know we we all are heirs of a man of dust we we are also heirs of the man of heaven Amen. and he takes this idea of of we're just ordinary nobodies but god has infused a new identity that will um that will transcend what we are right now that, that who we are we, we have not even begun to understand who we are and who we will be in christ so, as, as many people have said, the best is yet to come.
0: Yeah, amen. It's wonderful to remember that. Also, the word breath is part of your list of 10. God breathed the breath of life into man, and the man became a living being. Without the breath of God, we would not be able to live. Why does that matter? I mean, obviously, in, in natural ways, it matters, obviously. But, but when we're talking about breath from the understanding that we have of sin and the gospel and what God did for us in Jesus Christ, why is breath a big word?
1: yeah well for me breath is a simple reminder that we have a moment by moment dependence on god i I don't i don't think god just breathed the first breath of life into us he gives us every single breath and i can live days without food now now i don't want to but i can live days without food (laughs) I, i can live hours without water but without breath uh the best of us the healthy of us will expire in a matter of of minutes and so breath is, every time we take in a breath and exhale, we, we acknowledge our dependence on God for the very air that we breathe and the capability of doing that. Um, Paul, quote, quoting an ancient poet, he said, in him we live and move and have our being. If God withdrew himself from the universe, we would cease to exist. Mm-hmm. So breath is that moment-by-moment reminder of our absolute dependence on God. and It also teaches us, as a counterpoint to dust, dust is, is is very visible, very tangible. Breath, not so much so. Breath breath is very, um, it, it's invisible and it's mysterious.
0: Well, it is. And, and I think too about when we are renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And just as we cannot live without breath in our lungs, we cannot live spiritually apart from the power of God. In the Holy Spirit, who indwells us as Christians, we're going to come back. Darren Spoo with us. The Bible in Ten Words is his book, and we'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe.
1: The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Zonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible.
0: If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person
1: actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can. You know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the Word of God.
0: Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa.
2: We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles.
0: You can be the answer to a bible believer praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates, Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10. And your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YESWORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people
1: being changed by reading the Scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. And we're really glad that Darren Spoo is joining us. He is pastor of First Baptist Church of Tulsa and author of the Bible in 10 Words, Unlocking the Message of Scripture and Connecting with God, taking some of these key words out of the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, words that obviously pop up throughout the course of scripture and really remind us how wonderful it is to see what the work of God has done for us as sinners. And th- this is great. We've talked about some of these words. Darren, breath was the last one we were discussing. Another one you mention is garden, and of course, we talk about the Garden of Eden. This was a paradise. Adam and Eve had it so good, and then they had to go and, and sin, and, and now we're all sinners because of what Adam and Eve did. But when you think about the word garden, what is the significance to you of considering that word, not just there in Genesis, but throughout Scripture?
1: So, so I'm, I'm indebted at this point to uh, John Walton. He's an Old Testament scholar and just a, a brilliant, brilliant man. And and in his writings on the early chapters of Genesis, he reminds us of the ancient concept of a garden. A garden wasn't just a beautiful place. A garden uh, would be next to um, a king's palace, next to the royal's residence. And the purpose of that garden was really to contain, it was a microcosm of the kingdom, the the most exotic plants, the the most interesting animals would all be collected there in that garden. Uh, And so by saying that God put Adam and Eve in a garden, wasn't just a nice place. God wanted to neighbor with us. He wanted to be right there with us. He he wanted to have the best of his creation, which includes us in his image, as being there. And so, um, you know, for me, the word garden is all about relationship. That we were meant to live an intimate relationship with God. And so that's why when when man sinned, we were expelled from that garden. We lost a bit of that intimacy. But and it isn't it interesting, Janet, that that when Jesus goes to the cross, his last stop before the whole process of trial and crucifixion was in a garden. Yeah, and, and that that right. tells us something. That's a message there for us to say that Jesus is opening back a way of a relationship with God just in that act of, yeah. of a garden before his crucifixion.
0: That is so insightful. I had never really put it together like that before, but you're right. The connection between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane is undeniable. That is neat. That's that's really true. And you know, when we consider the the word river, which is your next word in your Bible in 10 words, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. We think of some of these images of of water and how important that is throughout scripture, but what stands out for you as far as why the river and that word is important?
1: Yeah, well, this is another very simple gospel connection because um, you know what major city is not located on a on a river? Uh, founding fathers of any city know that in order to have life, you need water, you need resources flowing through that through that city that that only a river can bring. And so, where does Jesus start his ministry in a river? And while well, Christian baptism takes many different forms throughout, you know, all. All the denominations. The one thing in common there is water. That that baptism symbolizes the resource of God's eternal life flowing, flowing into us. And so that river uh, carries with it a lot of meaning because it's it's a picture of of bearing life uh, in
0: its flow. Well, yeah, and you think of John 4 where Jesus tells the woman at the well, you know, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst, and the water I give him will become in him a fount of water springing up to eternal life. That image of water is there again, right there, describing who Jesus is for us.
1: That's exactly right. And And in heaven, the image that we have of heaven is there's a river that flows down the main street of the city. Yeah. And so um, normally when I see a river flowing down my street, that's not a good thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. but, but in heaven, it, it's a picture of God's abundance will flow through yet again where his people live, first in the garden, now in heaven.
0: That's excellent. Now the word eat is also part of your list and the Lord (laughs) God command. Yeah, that has to be there. Uh, but the Lord commanded man, you can eat from any tree of the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We know that famous, uh, famous command. Um, how does eating really resonate with you as an important word when we look at the whole of scripture?
1: Yeah, well, you know, eating is a great word that, um, that we treat as an extreme. Sometimes people die because they eat too much. You yeah, know? Right. Uh, and we're, we're overweight, and it's bad for our heart health and all this. But there's other people in the world that that die because they eat too little, and there's starvation. I mean, you, you just see the extremities of of that uh, in that one word. And isn't that the way God's commands? God commands work. Um, he says, "This is the way I want you to walk." Just even though my commands might not make sense in the moment. Uh, don't go to extremes. Don't be excessively evil. Uh, don't go too far in being overzealous for the good, but just just do a simple obedience of my command. And I, I think that, that word eat applies to so many things. If we just did what God commanded, we would realize that he has our best interest in mind. He commands these things, not because he's killing our joy, but because he understands how we best function.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, the bread of life, Jesus is the bread of life and man shall not that's live right. by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's another reminder, we are to feed on Christ in a spiritual sense and feed on his word. That, that's what really popped into my mind when I got to that section of your book, because I thought, boy, I need to feed on the word of God every single day, or I will die in a way that I would not die uh, in the same way if I had natural food and neglected that.
1: That's right. And and then there again, we, we make a connection between the garden and heaven because there we'll have the, the tree of life again. But it's not as it was in the garden. Now there will be 12 kinds of fruit, um, one for every month of the year, and it's a symbol of God's abundance and God's feeding his people all that they need. And will never... We'll never be hungry again.
0: That's terrific. Now, we're not going to be able to get to every single word. People can read your book, and they can get all of the great stuff that you've got in here about all of these different words. But I want to hop forward to another word on your list, afraid. And yeah. we, <laughs> that comes up in Genesis 3, obviously, when Adam says, you know, I heard, I was afraid. I was afraid of you, Lord, because I was naked, so I hid. Why is that significant, the fear that we have because of the fall?
1: Yeah, well, we have we have a choice. So, um, somebody has observed that the that the command to do not be afraid, fear not, is the most common command in scripture. In fact it's it's over three hundred and fifty times. Do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. But at the same time we're given this command to fear the Lord. Yes. And that's where I kinda of go with that is we can either live a life of being afraid or we can live a life of being uh, living in fear of the Lord. And that, that's not being afraid of God. That's being overwhelmed with awe and respect at God, that that everything else loses its factor of intimidation, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I think most of us were afraid, um, especially with what's happening in our world right now. I mean, we just look after COVID-19. There's so much to be afraid of. We are not called to live in fear, but we are called to live in fear of the Lord, that we are overwhelmed at His majesty and His mystery And because of that, we realize he has all things in his hands.
0: That's great. That is really good. And I love that you mentioned that because I think that there is... Not so much talk these days about the fear of the Lord, but the Bible is full of admonitions to fear the Lord. And I remember this quote, I think this was William Gurnall who said this, the man who properly fears God will fear nothing else.
1: That's exactly right. I love that.
0: That's what made me think of, and I'm glad you mentioned that in the book. Now, another word, your last word is sweat. We're talking about (laughs) (laughs) eating, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. And this is the curse that was upon mankind after, after the fall into sin. But our curse is lifted by Christ. How do you emphasize? That.
1: So, so of of all the chapters, sweat was the most challenging because the English word "sweat" only shows up twice in the Bible. Wow. That, that word in English translations only shows up twice: once in the garden where it's a curse; the other time is in the garden where okay. Jesus sweats blood yes. on our behalf.
0: Yes, and, and
1: right there is that connection between our curse he took on himself and And we don't have to live under the weight of sin anymore. Jesus has literally sweated out on our behalf. And in him is life. And so, uh, I have to tell you, Janet, that, that word almost didn't make the cut, but I'm so glad it did because oh. that's just a simple connection. Showing up twice, it's uh, so profound.
0: That's un- unbelievable. I'd, again, that's something I hadn't thought about before, but those are the only two times that sweat is mentioned in that's all right. of Scripture. Oh, man, that is awesome. Well, your perfect word, your final perfect word, which isn't part of the 10, but probably is the title and added to every single word in the entire list, and that is the name of Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Comment on this issue of all of these words being summed up in the name of Jesus.
1: So, so I cheat a little bit because I promise at the beginning that all these words are found in the first three chapters of Genesis. <laughs> Obviously, Jesus' name is, is not there. But, but again, going back to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And not only is Jesus the agent of creation, but Jesus is also God's ultimate Word, uh, just as he spoke creation into being so also he spoke salvation into being through the name of Jesus. And, and what does Philippians 2 say? That at his name, at, his, at the, name, uh, the, the word of his name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the hope of the gospel, yes. and that's God's perfect word to, to the aching human heart.
0: Very well said. Well, the name of the book, The Bible in 10 Words by Darren Spoo, who's been kind enough to join us today. And just so great to talk to you again, Darren. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Janet, thank you again.
0: You bet. God bless you. Thanks for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. Take care. This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.